No matter how you shape it, the combustion of coal has a lot of adverse impacts. And But the thing that I usually think about is the impact on coal miners. We're often told that the United Mine Workers and the people who own coal mines and the economies that are dependent on coal extraction, it's all about the jobs. I don't know if anybody who has listened to our podcast has ever known a coal miner, but if you have, have you ever known a coal miner that lived to be a very old age and died in their sleep from natural causes? The answer to that question is no, because no coal miner dies of natural causes. They die of white lung disease and black lung disease. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and with me today is my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. Hey, Vernice, welcome back. It's good to be hosting with you again. Hey, Mike. It has been a minute, but it is wonderful to be back on the air with you. Today, we begin a series on urban resilience in collaboration with Island Press. Once a month, we will work together to bring you thought leaders and change agents who are working at the cutting edge of addressing urban resilience challenges. Founded in 1984, Island Press works to stimulate, shape, and communicate the information that is essential for solving environmental problems. Today, with more than 1,000 titles in print and some 40 new releases each year, it is the nation's leading publisher of books on environmental issues. For more information and further updates, go visit www.islandpress.org. As our cities confront turbulent times, much depends on how resilience is defined and implemented. Seeing an opportunity to shape that outcome, Island Press launched the Urban Resilience Project in 2013 with the support of the JPB Foundation and the Kresge Foundation. The project's goal is to advance a holistic, transformative approach to thinking and acting on urban resilience in an era of climate change, an approach grounded in a commitment to sustainability and equity. For more information and to find out how you can get involved in the Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org slash URP. It's a capital U, capital R, capital P. So we're really excited. Island Press is a great organization, and we are very excited to be working with them to bring you this series of podcasts. So, Vernice, we're excited to have Jackie Patterson with us today. We've been trying to get Jackie as a guest for some time on the show. And I think we're also really excited to be talking about issues related to coal, coal-fired power plants, electricity, the impacts that the coal power plants are having on communities. And you've known Jackie for some time, is that correct? That is correct. We have been friends and colleagues for a long time. Everyone in, in the environmental 
justice arena was so, so excited and thrilled when they created the position that Jackie now holds at the NAACP, because it's really been, it's been difficult to get the mainstream civil rights groups engaged in this conversation. And Jackie has just been such an incredible partner, but also just a brilliant theoretician and tactician and thought leader about sort of where we need to go with these issues. And so you're right, Mike, we have been trying to get her for a while and it was wonderful to be able to talk to her today. And I think the other thing that, you know, you and I have had this a little bit of a conversation about the, you know, the current dynamic around coal and coal-fired power plants and the Trump administration is committed to bringing back coal jobs in coal country. And there's a lot of question about whether there's any possibility of that happening, regardless of what environmental policy is because of energy markets, the existence of natural gas, et cetera. But we've, you know, the pushback tends to be around environmental issues and particularly around the carbon issue. I shouldn't say environmental issues, but in particular, people are very concerned about the, you know, the carbon impacts of power plants. And we're not hearing as much about the other environmental impacts and the impacts on near-in communities. And, and you're very familiar with, I think, that issue and, and the attempts in the Obama administration to regulate power plants. Am I off? Am I wrong in in saying that we're not hearing enough about that challenge? You're not wrong at all. You're 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 right on point. The reason that EPA was so focused on trying to regulate the emissions from coal-fired power plants is that those emissions create huge pollution issues that then create and trigger huge public health challenges. And so, you know, if you were to look in the the supporting data that that follows the clean power plan, a regulation that's now out, you know, that's before the federal courts now for a determination about whether or not EPA could go forward and regulate clean power plants vigorously in this order. Most of EPA supporting data is about the public health benefits, right? So coal emissions and particulate pollution from combusting coal triggers asthma, triggers other kinds of lung problems, triggers lung cancer. The mercury from power plants triggers all kinds of cognitive problems as well as contaminants fish in the ocean and streams. There are just enormous public health dimensions to the pollution that comes from combusting coal. So there's pollution in the air, but there's also the ash that's left, coal ash, and what happens to that coal ash and where you, where you put it. So in a state like Pennsylvania or Illinois or Indiana or here in Maryland, where they have lots of landfills that are holding this coal ash, that coal ash seeps down into the water table and runs off into nearby water wells. If you're in a rural community and you're drinking well water, that coal ash is contaminating the source of your drinking water. So no matter how you shape it, the combustion of coal has a lot of adverse impacts. And But the thing that I usually think about even before I think about all of that stuff is the impact on coal miners. And, you know, we're often told that the United Mine Workers and the people who own coal mines and the economies that are dependent on coal extraction for their local economies that, you know, it's all about the jobs. It's all about the jobs. But I don't know if anybody 
who has listened to our podcast has ever known a coal miner. But if you have, have you ever known a coal miner that lived to be a very old age and died in their sleep from natural causes? The answer to that question is no, because no coal miner dies of natural causes. They die of white lung disease and black lung disease. And so I thought until recently, I thought that you had to be working in the mines underground for a really long time before you would start to to see the diminution in the function of your lungs and, and the, the very quality of your life because you're underground, you know, in a very dangerous industry. And I found out very recently from someone that you only have to be in the mines for 18 months. So you only have to have been actively mining underground for a year and a half before you start to see a diminution of the function of your lungs and other health issues that you begin to experience as a coal miner, right? So there's just no safe way to extract coal. So if you really care about coal miners and if you care about the folks who live in communities whose economy is dependent on coal, then you should care about them having the kind of quality of life and air to breathe that allows them to be able to retire from those jobs and live a, a, a fairly healthy and productive life. But that doesn't happen for coal miners. So it's always really interesting to me when I see, you know, like recently um, there was an effort to roll back the clean power plan. And so, you know, normally when when a new administration wants to pull back a regulation, they sign an executive order, they put something through OMB and that's it. But in this particular instance, they had a big public event where they brought members of the United Mine Workers and owners of coal minds over to US EPA so they could sign the rollback of the clean power plan in what? The Rachel Carson conference room at EPA on the third floor and headquarters. It's just a really cynical view of the cost that people pay for having jobs, right? That it's okay if they pay for, with their lives. It's okay if they destroy local local environments and ecologies. It's okay as long as people have jobs. And, and I think we need to really rethink that notion of what a job is and what a job should be able to do for you. It shouldn't be able to poison you in order for you to get a paycheck. Well, I don't disagree with you, Bernice. On the other hand, I don't know that anybody's racing provide an alternative economy in these communities. So, That's right. you know, I, I agree with you completely that it's a, it's a bad choice that you're forcing people to make, but there's clearly people out there that feel like, well, this is my only choice and I can make $7 an hour, $8 an hour flipping burgers at McDonald's, maybe, or I can earn a living wage and support my family working in the coal mine. So, it's a tough situation. I agree with you 100%, Mike. We've talked before about about the fact that there are, in aggregate, a clean energy economy is a good thing. We can see the economic benefits in aggregate. But that doesn't mean there's not winners and losers, right? right? So That's exactly right. Our conversation today is to talk a little bit more about some of the losers in a coal-burning economy that are the kind of the faceless victims, the folks who live near these power plants who have to bear the environmental burdens. Another day, maybe we can talk about the coal miners and, and what we need to do is so that they don't have to bear the economic burdens of moving to a clean economy. But, but maybe we should get to our guest. Yes. Our guest today is Jackie Patterson, director of the NAACP Energy and Climate Justice Program. Jackie has worked as a researcher, program manager, coordinator, advocate and activist working on women's rights, violence against women, HIV and AIDS, racial justice, economic justice, and environmental and climate justice. Previously, she served as assistant vice president of HIV AIDS programs for IMA World Health, 
providing management technical assistance to medical facilities and programs in 23 countries in Africa and the Caribbean. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you. So, Jackie, it's great to have you with us today. Bernice and I have a ton of things we'd like to talk to you about. But first, I kind of wanted to start off with a conversation about the term resilient communities, which has become kind of a more popular jargony term at the moment. I think for a lot of folks, urban resiliency is about improving our infrastructure and disaster preparedness. But I'd like to understand from your perspective and from the NAACP's perspective, how would you define urban resiliency? Resilience, I guess in any context, maybe I'll give specific urban examples if I can think of them, would be the ability of a community to to withstand disturbances, basically, to, to, to life and living. And as we define resilience in our work as a civil and human rights organization, we look at the structural inequities that make com- certain communities more vulnerable to whether it's disasters or sea level rise or other types of shifts. And we, we want to, as we build resilience, it includes eliminating those vulnerabilities um, to the extent that that's possible and then working with communities to be able to be resilient in the face of vulnerabilities while we're working towards eliminating those vulnerabilities. So, Jackie, I want to take a step back and ask you a sort of contextual question about sort of the civil rights arena and field and environment, energy and climate justice issues. So it's been really challenging to get traditional civil rights groups to include environmental and climate justice concerns as part of their civil rights agenda. What do you think motivated the NAACP to create your program on energy and climate justice? Yes, our environmental and climate justice program was really born out of a recognition that communities are being harmed first and worst, communities of color, low-income communities, women to some extent, and, and you know other groups are being disproportionately impacted by the environmental injustices, whether it's exposure to toxins, air pollution, water pollution, land contamination, etc., to the fact that these communities are do hold these pre-existing vulnerabilities that that make them more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, including sea level rise, extreme weather events, shifts in agricultural yields, etc. So recognizing the structural challenges that make it difficult for communities to be resilient to these impacts, and recognizing that even the the drivers of climate change and the environmental assaults that communities face are more likely to be impacted by uh, people of different racial and ethnic groups, people of different um, nationalities, etc. We saw it as clearly a civil rights issue that needed to be addressed not just at the local level, but also in terms of our whole policy landscape, our corporate responsibility framework, etc., etc. And how has it been getting the chapters, the various chapters of the NAACP to really take on these issues? Has there been resistance or have people been like, oh, wow, where have you been, Jackie? We've been waiting on you. Uh, I would say a mix of both, for sure. So there has been a lot of people who have been fighting this fight for a long time. So they've, they've already been in the trenches, and finally they're glad to have some support at the national level to help them with these challenges. And then there are other folks who are facing so many challenges, like so many of these communities, all those vulnerabilities I mentioned and the marginalization are each of them are assaults on communities and communities are, are, are fighting off 
you know, everything from, you know, racial profiling, police brutality, all these different things on top of HIV and grinding poverty and all these different challenges. And so the environmental assaults are just another one on top of it all. And they might not necessarily see that as necessary as being a, um, a threat multiplier for those other issues that they're facing. And so one of our one of our tasks is to really work with communities to help them to develop a vision and a set of strategies that address all the different threats that they're facing in an intersectional integrated way is there some besides the is there some legal advantage to looking at it as a civil rights issue versus the traditional environmental justice approach i so certainly when we're talking about equal rights under the law, which is, uh, you know, the kind of definition of civil rights, and, and there's certainly legal handles that one could employ as it relates to defining something as a civil rights issue. So one could say that, for example, looking at our clean air standards, that it, they're, they're not being equally upheld when you have 71% of African Americans living in counties in violation of air pollution standards. And so if African Americans are disproportionately experiencing poor air quality, and then we make the tie in terms of various respiratory illnesses and other impacts of of, of that air pollution that are, that are conditions that are linked to air pollution, then there's a, there's a legal handle to that, particularly when we can tie it to a specific facility that is causing that disparate impact. So there is definitely that legal handle. Great. So let, let's dig a little, we'd like to dig into a couple of issues, a couple of reports that, that the NAACP recently, or not so long ago, released. The, one is the cold-blooded, which you were a, a principal author of, can you tell us a little bit about that, the report, and what the major findings were? Sure. The cold-blooded report studied 378 coal-fired power plants throughout the country, and it, it ranked them based on what their sulfur dioxide emissions were, are, are, their nitrogen oxide emissions, and then it also ranked them on the number of people that were near the plants, the population density, the proportion of people who were people of color, and the proportion of people who were low income. And using that and recognizing also the intersectional with that is the fact that coal-based energy production is the number at that time, number one contributor to carbon dioxide emissions that drive climate change. We really saw, again, the coal-fired power plants is something that is a threat to our community, both at the time of the emissions, because it's putting these these various toxins into the communities, but then also in, in terms of its, its contribution to climate change, which also disproportionately impacts vulnerable communities. So that was the impetus for us putting together this report. And the findings of the report were that there were um, multiple coal-fired power plants that were, well, all, overall, that coal-fired power plants are disproportionately located in communities of color, which we already knew just from looking at the census census data and the um, EPA emissions data. And so they were able to surmise that, but the report just kind of elaborated on that and told the stories that they go around the, these, these statistics. And we kn- so we knew that, six- so we found that 68% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant. And we also, you know, heard the stories of people who lost family members to lung disease, but ne- who never smoked a day in their lives. People who had um, children with 
with asthma who were so dependent on their medicines and, and weren't able to go to school like other kids because of poor air quality days. So we both, you know, both had the statistical analysis and then we had the, the community experiences and stories to really go with those findings. And so from that, we launched our cold-blooded campaign where we worked with both plant owners work with, to some extent, legislation, I mean, yeah, uh, particularly around local ordinances and so forth to really take communities out of harm's way in terms of these coal fire power plants and push for a uh, just transition to a more energy efficient, clean energy economy. So, in this administration, you know, we're hearing a lot now about, you know, bringing coal back, saving the coal economy. We're hearing a lot about the economies that have been negatively impacted in West Virginia, other states. And we're also hearing that, oh, this is a horrible thing because of climate change. I I was saying to Vernice earlier, I'm not hearing a lot and seeing a lot about all the other negative impacts of coal, in particular the negative impacts on communities of color, environmental justice communities, folks near these power plants. Are you as dismayed as we are in terms of how little conversation there seems to be about that? Or are we missing the boat? Is that being talked about? It's not. Be- it's definitely not being talked about enough. That is definitely true. And yes, it, it's an under-recognized, under-discussed issue for sure. You don't hear that level of, uh, of discussion around that. And that's why, that's why when we did put out the report, it was such a, uh, a different analysis at that scale. And, and, and a lot of folks who were doing work on coal-fired power plants, they were just focusing in terms, so our prioritization recognized the climate impacts, but we prioritized based on the community impacts as well, knowing that each and every one of these coal-fired power plants were, were, uh, were contributing to our greenhouse gas burden, whereas other, other organizations have their priority list is based on the greenhouse gas emissions alone. So they might just be focusing on the ones that put out the most carbon. And that, that, that type of prioritization and focus just takes out altogether any kind of uh, nuanced concern about the impacts that these plants have on communities and really looking at coal pollutants and how it affects communities. So, Jackie, you and the NAA also put out another report more recently, Lights Out in the Coal, Reforming Utility Shutoff Policies as if Human Rights Matter, which calls for the establishment of a universal right to uninterrupted energy service. Can you say more about why you think uninterrupted energy service should be looked at as a civil and human rights issue? Absolutely. Yeah, so the... I don't know, irony seems like too mild of a word, but the the kind of egregious injustice in this is that often it's these very same communities that are choking down the fumes from these coal-fired power plants because they tend to be low-income communities and communities of color are the ones that are also more likely to be on the rolls to have their their utilities shut off. So they're they're paying the price for the production of the energy that, that sometimes they don't even have access to because they aren't able to pay for that very same resource. And so that is, you know, at the height of injustice. And the and, and so one is just kind of the separation of the folks from that from that resource, but then two is that is the fact that it has happened too often to deadly effect. As we noted in the report there have been numerous instances, although one is too many, of people who, again, become so desperate after their electricity has been shut off because, and again, it's not, it's not like they're choosing between their electricity 
and and a coach purse or anything. They're choosing between electricity and medicine, electricity and food, electricity and whatever the other necessities in life are. So when they finally have to make that choice that says, okay, we're going to have to let this electricity bill go, then the, you find folks in such dire circumstances where if they're without lights and they need lights in their home, they'll light a candle. And too often that has resulted in homes being burned down and, and loss of life. We might find people who have their oil cut off for their heating, and then they will use that all-too-deadly space heater technology that we've seen that has tied time and time again to loss of life because those spaces are so um, dangerous, and depending on how, how one uses them. And then also we have had too many instances where people are dependent on electricity for their for even their um, respirators, if they're if they're plugged into a respirator that requires energy to to operate, and and there were a couple of instances I cited in the report where that ended up resulting in loss of life. Another instance where people decided to use a generator because they didn't have electricity and carbon monoxide poisoning took the lives of, of, of families. So again, this is where we see this as a civil rights issue because no one should pay. The price of poverty should never be death. And I might even add, though, your report focused on energy utility shutoff, but I would also add water shutoff to that, which just seems to me to be a really inhuman piece of public policy that a local, a lot of utilities, water utilities are putting out. We saw a big case in the city of Detroit where they were just turning off people's water right and left for unpaid bills, though the Detroit Lions Stadium had a huge bill and their their water wasn't turned off. But it just seems like your your notion of focusing on human rights on basic fundamental human rights is really a critical set of issues here that don't get talked about a lot, but really need to be lifted up. Is that why you went in this direction with your report? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and it's been interesting just how many people are shot. Everyone, every person I've spoken to about it has said, I thought this was illegal. Like people had no idea that it was possible to literally kill people for not being able to pay their electricity or, as you say, to be able to pay their water bills. Just a couple of years ago, 23,000 people in Baltimore were on the rolls to have their water water shut off. And that's a whole nother, um situation where we've seen these water shutoffs happening. And again, it's the same communities, communities of color, low-income communities who are just caught between a rock and a hard place in terms of basic necessities and their ability to pay them. The challenge here, obviously, is that, you know, there's, like Vernice said, the, the Detroit Lions aren't paying their bills. So there's got to be some mechanism to not let everybody not pay their bills. So what are the best practices? What should a utility be doing, particularly electrical utility, to address this problem and alleviate this, this hardship for people without just allowing anybody to not pay their electric bill? Right. So we definitely want our first and foremost calling for a moratorium on shutoffs. And there are ways that that some of the uh, utilities have been able to do financing in a way that has allowed that is, has, has facilitated people in pay because people by and large want to pay their bills. Um, so to facilitate people in paying their bills and really worked hard with people who aren't able to pay their bills and not and then them not have to not having to shut off. The, the uh, electricity or whatever it is um, in terms of basic necessities. Two is to the extent that there are existing policies around shutoffs or practices around shutoffs, 
we are saying that at the very least there should be seasonal protections where you're not shutting off someone's electricity if it's below 32 degrees outside or below 40 degrees outside or in that you're not shutting off someone's electricity if it's above 90 degrees outside or above 80 degrees outside. Two, you're not shutting off people's electricity if there are children in the home. Three, you're not shutting off people's electricity if there's a person for people with special health needs in the home. Another is that you're not shutting off people's electricity during hours when there's not anyone to shut it back on if they ha- if they are able to put it together to pay their bills. So just some basic basic provisions so that it, it it lessens the chance of putting someone in harm's way and especially lessens the chance of putting the most vulnerable people in harm's way even um, within not engaging in a to- uh, moratorium on shutoffs. And I think I think you also in your report you touched also on the um, the need for more targeted programs for energy conservation for low-income communities. And I think that this is this, this, this kind of vicious cycle, right, of folks who are at the lower end of the in- income scale end up living in housing that is substandard, oftentimes rental properties, and, and those landlords get away with, and, and the utility bills in those properties are very high. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot that could be done in terms of that, too. Yeah, definitely. This is actually an issue that had came up in terms of, and I'm trying to think of the name of the term. There was a there was a, a mechanism that folks were able to use when the landlord isn't paying their electricity bills, and then the tenants end up being impacted. Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, I wish I could remember the term that they used for it. Yeah, but it's something where tenants can can then take over control so that they're not the ones who end up being penalized when they're paying their bill and the landlord isn't paying the bill. So there's some interesting um, mechanisms. That, that people are able to use there. So Jackie, we've unfortunately come to the end of our time with you and boy, do we wish we could just have hours to to talk to you, Jackie Patterson, about all the things that, that you are observing out there and all the advocacy that you are bringing to the fore. A lot of issues are being driven by the NAACP now at a higher order level than um, hadn't been at the past, but where do you want to see this public policy conversation go? What are some of the things that you hope we'll be able to accomplish, even in this moment of pushback at the federal level? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess starting even from this whole issue of some of the very, when we talk about lights out in the cold, some of the very policies that are on the chopping block right now, like LIHEAP, the Low Income Heating and Energy Assistance Program, thousands of people in various states are on the are who are who are on the edge and their only way of being able to meet those those heat, heating costs those energy costs is through the LIHEAP funds that is um, set to be eliminated if this blueprint goes forward in terms of the proposed budget. So we really need to, to be able to, to lift that out and fight for those policies to be maintained to protect the most vulnerable communities as it relates to to having that assistance. And then more broadly, when we look at uh, the fact that the environmental justice program is also on the chopping block, again, the very issues that we've been talking about since the beginning of this conversation are those communities that are supported and whose power and, um, and self-determination is uplifted through those environmental justice policies. And that's what we need to be um, pushing for. And so, Again, just putting human rights at the center of, of how we how we do our policy making, and then also working with our communities. Who, if as these policies go forward, we really do need to start focusing on self determination as communities 
we're working with communities on generating their own energy, on starting to grow their own food. Um, some places we have uh, contaminated soil, so we're trying to be creative about going through the raised bed farming or through aquaponics. So really starting to be the change that we want to see in the world as we kind of wait out a, a, a less than favorable policy policy um, landscape. But so while pushing back on those inequitable policies, starting to really do for ourselves as communities and seize our own power. Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you for all of the vitally important work that you do. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for being interested. And I look forward to, to more conversation, more collaboration. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. So, Vernice, that was a, Jackie's a great guest. It was a great conversation. We thought here at the end of the show we'd share uh, things that we're seeing in the news. And uh, I, I noticed lately in the news, the one story that kind of strikes me is the amount of um, renewable energy that's being created in the Midwest of the United States. So an article recently that the state of Kansas in the last six years alone has is now producing 30% of its uh, power from wind power. And they're expecting by 2020 that the state will be producing 50% of its power from renewable sources. But then I also saw an article just, just this morning about the state of uh, Iowa, that now Iowa might be up to about 35% of their power is being mm-hmm. produced by wind. So that's very encouraging and very exciting that it's, you know, states other than the coastal states that are really also having a, making a lot of progress in terms of renewable energy. Anything in the news that you see that's um, of interest? Well, uh, you know, also back on this, I guess the reason that it's so it's so in my mind is that there were two articles in the New York Times over the weekend about coal ash and how there's some local communities are coming together to battle with coal-fired power plants around the impact on their water quality from uh, the so coal ash is you know is the the residue that's left when you when you burn and and combust coal in a coal-fired power plant it leaves a fine black ash and that ash gets put in a landfill. EPA recently rolled out a reg um, about three years ago in 2014 to regulate coal ash as a hazardous substance, some some streams of coal ash. But if you live near a landfill where they're dumping coal ash it's or a power plant where they're keeping the coal ash on site, it's a, a pretty unpleasant thing to live next to. But it was interesting to see two articles in the New York Times about that over the weekend. That's great, Bernice. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for co-hosting today. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.